0: The Bugatti family are, are, it's amazing. Their legacy and their accomplishments really were cut short and it would have been fascinating to see what they would have gone on to do. However, what they did do in that short period of time is something that nobody else has ever matched.
1: everybody welcome to horsepower heritage i'm maurice merrick and greetings to all of you listening from all points of the compass from across the country and across the sea and i've got a great show for you today but before we get into that i just want to mention some new stuff on the youtube channel i've got two videos with automotive journalist ronald aarons and the first one covers his boyhood memories of watching his dad racing stock cars in nebraska and then his time writing for automobile magazine and that one's called confessions of a car guy and the second video is a deep dive into some history, from the early days of Detroit all the way up into the 70s. So that ties into Ronald's upcoming book entitled The American Automobile from Fliver to Furious. And I think even if you've heard the podcast edition of my interview with Ronald, you're going to enjoy the videos as well because there's lots of archival material in there to help tell the story. And the third video is The Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost, which is my interview with Alan and Ivy Clendenen from two weeks ago. And you've got to see these cars. In fact, there's some driving footage in that one and also some incredible photography from my pal Royce Rumsey. And it really brings the whole thing to life. So when you're about to pour yourself a frosty beverage tonight, head on over to the Horsepower Heritage YouTube channel, and I think you'll enjoy the full dimension of these stories. As always, smash that follow button, leave me five stars in a quick review, and now let me tell you about today's episode. John Bothwell is the director of Persong Argentina which produces precise replicas of the most desirable Bugattis and Alfa Romeos of the 20s and 30s. And they do other cars, too. And when I say replica, I mean they even replicate the original manufacturing methods. A team of 100 craftsmen build each car to order, and no detail is overlooked. Now, John's great-uncle, Lindley Bothwell, was one of the first guys to recognize, collect, and preserve early automobiles. And John is carrying on that family tradition, which you're going to hear about. And he's a first-class car enthusiast. And this is a longer episode than usual, but it is well worth it because I think John articulates the magic and significance of this stuff far better than I could. And it was just such a great conversation. We we could have gone a couple more hours. But anyway, you're going to learn a lot. And the full video of this one is on its way. And I'll let you know when that drops. But seriously, where else are you going to hear about everything from Grand Prix Bugattis and Alphas to restoring a steam locomotive and touring in a Model T? So stay tuned for all of that. It's coming up right after this. This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. No matter what's in your garage, you can fit all your automotive heroes on a shelf. And they've got you covered, whether it's 143rd scale, 118th scale, or even the ginormous 18 scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. Go to ModelCitizenDieCast.com and get 10% off when you use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout. Limitations apply. From race cars to street cars and everything in between, it's Model Citizen DieCast because your inner child still wants to play with cars. And now my interview with John Bothwell, right here on Horsepower Heritage. Well, John, thanks for having us in today pretty awesome cars hey thanks thanks for coming yeah i am so excited about this i've been wanting to talk to you for so long and finally the day has come but um you know i think we should start by giving people an idea of how deep your family roots really go in collector cars they go about as deep as as you can
0: yeah um i i guess so you know um uh, the story is is really just very similar to what a lot of people do today. It just so happens that they started back before it was a thing. And, um, you know, it, it began when two brothers, uh, Lindley Bothwell and Doug Bothwell, Doug was my grandfather, Lindley was my great uncle, brought home a 1902 Curved dash Oldsmobile from a dump, and they drove it home. They spent all their allowance money on it. They drove it home to their house in Hancock Park. And um, their dad, my great-grandfather, wasn't very happy about that, as the story goes. And the story almost kind of gives the sense that his displeasure with their purchase decision is what sort of um, galvanized the, the commitment for future car purchases. And so the... Uh, Bothwell Car Collection, as it became known, moving forward would, would consist of a lot of things that came out of dumps and that uh, were rescued, and car collecting wasn't a thing. And you know, think about it, uh, 1902 Curved dash Oldsmobile purchased in what was, I think, um, mid to late 1920s. Mm-hmm. So that would be like today buying a car out of the dump that was built in the early 2000s. Right. Um, this wasn't like they were finding a 100-year-old car. So um, there was a, a lot of foresight, I guess. You could say people um, would, would maybe categorize them as uh, thinking ahead of their time. Lindley would go on to, to really be known for that, for um, thinking of things before they became trends, uh, saving old race cars and things like that. So the, the car collection became really early horseless carriages, race cars, and big touring cars. And uh, the first vintage races, certainly on the West Coast, um, and in some respects in the country, were, were things that he put on uh, in the Del Mar fairgrounds, on the oval dirt horse track, or on Catalina Island when they would put them on a boat and do a race from uh, Avalon to the Ismiths, uh all on dirt roads. So there there was a lot of fun stuff happening that today we would say like, oh, yeah, well, you know, car guys, you know, they, they rescue old cars, they keep them running, they collect them, they race them, they do vintage racing. But almost 100 years ago, when this all began with the Bothwells, no one else was doing it. So that's what kind of makes the story interesting, I suppose.
1: Yeah, that's what I find so remarkable about it is is that uh, cars were throwaway and, and, and old cars just really weren't worth a whole lot of money. Right. The other thing that's interesting about Lindley putting on the vintage events is, I think, tell, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think that kind of coincided with sort of a nostalgia craze in the 1950s for the gay 90s, right? The 1890s, that, mm-hmm. that I guess, Edwardian period uh, when, you know, there was there was a lot of
0: nostalgia surrounding it. Yeah, absolutely. And you saw that come out in groups that Lindley was very involved with, like the Horseless Carriage Club. Um, Other members of the Horses' Carriage Club would be like uh, Ward Kimball, who was Walt Disney's right-hand man and animator. And when Disneyland was created, a lot of which was designed by uh, Ward Kimball, you see that kind of nostalgia craze, where it's the Edwardian period sort of through the lens of, and in some cases reimagined by, the tastes of the 1950s. And whether it was in their uh, sort of Uh, understanding of architecture or how vintage cars should look. Um, You you saw a lot of that, but they were really into that period. And, um, you know, the Horses' Carriage Club was a really big deal nationally, but also in Los Angeles starting, you know, going back to the, gosh, 1930s, 1940s. I, I actually have a copy of the first Horses' Carriage Club Gazette on the wall in here somewhere that, that has the exact date, but people were really into that stuff, and you would have uh, pictures like a lot of the old black and white pictures I have here of the members of the club with their wives in full period dress, driving around these old tiller steering cars, doing these these tours and things. So yeah, they, they were really into it. How much fun would that
1: be? I'm glad you brought up Disney and Ward Kimball because you know we all know that idyllic setting on Main Street, right. And also the Disneyland automobile fleet that, you know, is operating still today. Right. It's a great, like, sojourn into the past. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Lindley and Doug, huge collectors. And you come along eventually, right? (laughs) And your childhood is surrounded with these cars.
0: Yeah, so when I grew up, it was a family tradition when I was young that, um, Everybody would go to the Bothwell Ranch on Thanksgiving and there would be some big happening. And so some years, um, the 19th century, speaking of Edwardian stuff, the 19th century steam locomotive that was out there would get fired up and uh, we would ride behind a steam train before Thanksgiving dinner. Or uh, it happened several times that a number of old cars would get uh, prepared and there would be like a Thanksgiving Day tour. Which was a lot of fun, and it turned out that um, going touring on a major holiday is a great idea because no one else is on the road around dinner time on Thanksgiving. Right. And so it's a great time to be driving around to LA in a bunch of horses' carriages. And I have uh, very fond memories of those days, and I think my, my first memory of one of those events was Thanksgiving 1988, and <clears throat> I was sitting in the house at the ranch that was next to one of the railroad tracks. I was with my mom and I was with Ann Bothwell and some of the relatives and I was just a, a bored kid and I was really young and um, I was looking out the window and, you know, I saw the cow catcher of a steam locomotive kind of pierce through the orange trees and the diamond smokestack and all that stuff and I can literally remember nothing else from nineteen eighty eight. But I remember seeing that that eighteen seventies steam locomotive with smoke and steam and everything and it was it was something that, you know, for a little boy like left a, a huge impression. And um so I have memories like that of, of the ranch or, you know, driving around in um old locomobiles or peerlesses or uh Silver Ghosts and things like that on these holiday kind of tours. And, you know, to this day, I, I look back on those kinds of memories with, you know, I, I just cherish them as some of my, my favorite memories of my life.
1: Oh, yeah. It's magical, right? So eventually, Lindley's collection
0: was sold off. And that was not too long ago. Yes. When um, when Anne passed away in 2016, there was an auction that sold most of the collection shortly thereafter. So most of the stuff that was known to the ranch was dispersed and, um, that created an opportunity for everybody to take anything that they had an interest in, you know, including other relatives who wanted, uh, you know, something, a particular car or whatever. But as it happened, um, you know, apart from, well, I, th- I think my dad, myself, and, um, and one of our sort of cousins, I think, were the only people who actually used that opportunity to retain some things and to, you know, acquire some things. But um, I, I did I did end up with the, the biggest sort of, um, you know, intact chunk of stuff as the result of that, including the steam locomotive and all the railroad stuff. And um, I, I've been able to also buy other things since then which you know i've I've realized i've fallen into the role of sort of buying back the family silver in a sense and so the cars that um, i didn't already have have subsequently come on the market so the peerless that i remember from uh you know old family holidays i've been able to buy um i bought a little two-cylinder maxwell about a year ago and other things like that so as it as it happens today i think right here is the biggest uh, remnant of the most amount of Bothwell cars and other things in one place, including an 1879 steam locomotive.
1: Yeah, that's an amazing. <laughs> we can talk about that a little bit if you want. I know that you're doing a full restoration of it, and who restores locomotives anymore, right? Right. I mean,
0: yeah. So we, I, I guess you could say we we restore all the the weird stuff that no one else in in Southern California is doing. You know, we're we're doing some pretty big car restorations and special projects at the moment, but Um, Probably the most unusual all of them is this uh, steam locomotive. It's it's really neat. It was built in 1879. Uh, It was the first American-built locomotive that went to Hawaii. And a lot of people know that because of the Hawaii sugarcane industry, there was a a pretty broad and expansive railroad system there. Um, This locomotive was named Kalakaua after the then king of Hawaii. And it was it was really something very special and very uh, important at the time. And so it was uh, decked out. I mean, it was just a gorgeous, when you think 19th century elegance with brass and gold leaf, this had all of that. And um, it's, it's not really been seen in that condition by anybody alive today because it went through several iterations. By the 1920s, it was just a workhorse and it was all black. And then speaking of this sort of... Um, Fascination in the nineteen fifties with Edwardian things. When it did come to California in the early nineteen sixties, it was restored in a way. Well, it would it would fit in perfectly at Disneyland. It was all painted bright red, and they didn't really do much research on what it actually looked like new. But it it was definitely something from that era that uh, fit right in the kind of horseless carriage club Ward Kimball kind of culture. So what we're doing is actually taking it back, and we're doing. Um, I mean, you could you could say this is sort of like a pebble beach restoration of this thing to its 1879 uh, spec. And we've located the original spec sheet from 1879. We know every detail of what it's supposed to look like. And we're taking it back to that. And um, it's, it's going to be spectacular when it's done. That's amazing. Uh, now, did you have to hire a boilermaker to work on the locomotive? Um, the the boiler did need some work, um, and we uh, subcontracted a, a, a licensed company that is recognized by Cal OSHA. And um, the boiler was in remarkably good shape. Um, the the state inspector told me it was kind of funny. He said, um, you know, I'm not too worried about your boiler. He said, I'm, I'm worried about new boilers made out of Chinese steel that are like in the basements of hospitals. And your (laughs) boiler has got Vanderbilt steel stamped all over it. And he said, I think that this is okay, but we found a few things that needed to be fixed. And we had those fixed and it's all been certified and all that. And, um, You know, I mean, the thing has been taken completely apart. What's funny about restoring a steam locomotive as opposed to a car is that you've got about a fifth of the parts. Okay, I mean, it's a relatively simple machine. The difference is, is that all of those parts are 10 times as big as anything on a car. Right. So if you want to put something in a lathe to resurface the tread of, say, the wheel, you need a 10-ton overhead gantry crane to get it chucked up in the lathe. Right. So that's that's kind of where the, the labor comes in. But all of that's done. The boiler's done. Everything mechanical is done. And we're just on to uh, cosmetic stuff at this point.
1: Nice. On the downhill. On the downhill, finally. Yeah, finally. That's, that's really yeah. cool. So in addition to the locomotive your personal projects, as well as special customer cars you're restoring. You're also the director of Persang Argentina, which uh, is an amazing company. The, the, the cars that you guys build are like world-class, and uh, I'm just really curious how that all came about.
0: <laughs> yeah, so Persang was started by, and you said it very well, by the way. Thank Persong. you. Persang. right? Know, we're, we're feeling very French at the moment. We. Oui. And, and well, Maurice, so you know, right. this, this is you all fitting together. but. Most other people I talked to would say Persang, and right. uh, Persang was started, uh, or, or in Spanish, Pursang, mm-hmm. Pur Sangre. Um, Jorge Anadon started Persang out of a, an ambition to have a Bugatti and to build himself a Bugatti. And like most good things in life, um, this great thing sort of came about you know you could say a little bit by accident i don't i don't think there was i mean i know that in the outset there wasn't any kind of grand business plan for for where we are today we've never like had a a plan with an accountant of this is where we're going to go this is a very passion driven thing that for every new project for every car for for everything that's undertaken it's all based on a shared passion of everybody in the team of something that we want to create And enjoy and share the ability with with other people to be able to enjoy. So, um, you know, what we're doing is we're recreating and rebuilding the sort of lost masterpieces of automotive history. And I I guess it resonates with me personally on a few levels because, you know, going back to the the Bothwell Ranch stuff, growing up and being a kid around these old cars... um, yeah, you know, we would do tours once a year in some of these old touring cars, but all the old race cars in the collection, I never saw those run as a kid. Um, those were used in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. And then, you know, in more recent years, it's like, hey, those are really valuable. You know, when you've got, you've got a Grand Prix winning uh, a Peugeot prototype of the twin cam engine design or a Mercedes Simplex Vanderbilt car, things like that, it's like, you know, we're just going to leave those alone. So those were to look at not to touch. Well, here comes this this venture now in Argentina where race cars are being created so that people can enjoy them and so that people can, uh, more importantly, understand and really experience firsthand why they became famous in the first place. If you're driving a a sort of clapped out 100-year-old Bugatti that's been crashed and put back together a dozen times, you may not experience the sort of vision and design with 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 you know sort of precision and sharpness of its designer, a Tori Bugatti. Sure. The the way you would if you're in a, a brand new car a hundred years ago. So we try to give people the experience of what it was like to have a brand new car a hundred years ago when they were first made. And um by the way, just so everyone knows, Persong means pure blood. Pure blood, yes. Or
1: of pure blood. So The idea is the thoroughbred Thoroughbred, cars Mm -hmm. of the 20s and
0: 30s. Yes, and that was an expression of of Ettore Bugatti um, for his own company, le person d'automobile, the thoroughbred of cars. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in Ettore Bugatti's day, you had, you know, in in the 1920s already, you had all kinds of cars all over the world. This guy thought outside of the box. Um, He was not making 15 million Model Ts. He was not making the big, giant german and english cars with huge engines that did okay on a straight line but not so much around turns he rethought the automobile and from front to back on a type 35 bugatti you can see the ingenuity and the groundbreaking first time successes of of countless little uh, design hacks and features so it's really important that these cars are driven so that that can be appreciated and we give people that opportunity. We like to, uh, recreate the build process as much as the final product. And so everything at the factory today with roughly a hundred guys at at the, in the workforce full time, uh, everything is in-house pattern making, foundry, machine shop, panel beading, paint, upholstery, final assembly, engine assembly, all that stuff is under our roof. Everything virtually except, um, I don't know buying a few electrical components things like coils uh things like tires but everything else we make so uh it's it's a very special company and I'm I'm very passionate about it and um it's funny because in the beginning uh Jorge said hey you you know you speak Spanish and you're in the states we should try to sell these cars I really didn't think that this would go anywhere. I mean, in the back of my mind, you know, he said, hey, we should do something together. And I was like thinking to myself, you know, who who the hell is going to buy (laughs) a... It's a long shot. (laughs) Yeah, this is a long shot. And then, you know, kind of, I came back talking to people and people started buying these. And, you know, it's very slowly grown to where we are today. And it's become very successful. And these cars are in very high demand. We have a a very long waiting list now. And um, it's great. I mean, it, it brings all of us a lot of personal satisfaction because we are... Uh, giving people, with each new car we build, we're giving people the opportunity to experience these and appreciate them. I routinely sell cars to uh, Silicon Valley car collectors or people in in the, the Gulf countries in the Middle East, people who are young and who are wealthy and who have a lot of cars. But they have things like new McLarens and new Ferraris and all the sort of supercar stuff. Right. And they've never given pre-war cars a chance because, you know, you look at them in a museum, you see them in a book, but where do you get to drive them? So I like to get them to behind the wheels of our cars. And it's incredible because our cars, compared to a lot of these supercars, are really inexpensive. And so these guys will have spent the least amount of money on any of their cars on what they buy from us. And then they come back and they say, I can't believe it. This is my favorite car to drive. This is the car that I get in before any of the other cars. And, you know, and then, and then we stop and we look at that and we realize we're creating this whole uh, this whole demographic of pre-war, very early, uh, sort of, you know, post-Edwardian, but pre-war Grand Prix car nerds. All these guys who would have never been interested in it, who would have never had the outlet and the ability to gain an appreciation and and a passion for this stuff, all of a sudden are the guys who are building up libraries and collecting books, and they're becoming these like aficionados on pre-war cars. And so being able to sort of proselytize all this stuff in a way that nobody else can, because how do you do that if you have a car that's like, well, here's our museum, you could come look at this static display. Sure. That's very different than saying, hey, here's a way you can get behind the wheel and drive that thing that changed the automobile forever.
1: Yeah, and it's so cool to think about how they have this epiphany because the cars are like living, breathing things compared to an Aventador mm-hmm. or or a McLaren, which are incredibly capable but a little bit anodyne.
0: Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, I uh, one of my favorite stories is is a, a customer of ours who uh, became a, a very good friend, and he's bought a couple of our cars, and I mean, he's he's got every supercar, hypercar, everything imaginable, and. Um, he has a type 35 of ours, which he drives pr- pretty much daily at this point, And he loves it. And he told me not too long ago that he started selling off his Lamborghinis that,
1: you know, <laughs> I can care
0: less what other cars people own. But I mean, there's, there's something that, that makes me really happy to, to know that he's cherishing the type 35 and driving it every day. And, you know, he's happy to let the Lamborghinis go out to pasture. <laughs>
1: <laughs> a couple interesting things to just touch on, John I would love to get into what makes the Type 35 distinctive, what makes the, the early alphas distinctive mechanically uh, from an engineering standpoint. But we also really need to talk about the factory in Argentina and why Argentina is sort of the ideal place mm-hmm. to do what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about the, the, the cars themselves first, the, the, the engineering. What made them so good?
0: When you look at a car like the Type 35, you have to first look at it next to its contemporaries. And old race cars were developed as um, sort of carryovers of horseless carriages. And there was this attitude in in the, the primitive days of car design that if a little is good, then a lot's better. So... You ended up having huge engines, but they were mounted in the same sort of precarious place as they would have been in a, in a smaller passenger car. So a giant displacement thing that's over the front axle and, you know, no ability to brake or steer or any kind of cornering. And the Type 35 has a lot of features that are sort of pedestrian by today's standards. But when you look at it in the context of the early 1920s when it was designed... It is remarkable. Um, Instead of a big giant engine, it has a little 2.3 liter engine. Instead of a big heavy car, it's a very light car. It only weighs like 1,800 pounds. Mostly all aluminum engine. It's the first car ever to have alloy wheels. A lot of people forget that. And the reason it had alloy wheels is that if you have alloy wheels, you can have great brakes because in the case of Bugatti, the wheel and the brake drum are the same casting. So all the heat from the brake drum gets absorbed by the rest of the wheel, the spokes acting as a, as a kind of radiator, and the spokes themselves are uh, angled so that as the car is moving, those spokes act as a fan to blow air onto the drums. So now you have a car um, that has good brakes, which is in its own right something that's revolutionary for the 1920s. And by the way, those brakes, although being cable actuated, are equalized mechanically side to side and front to back. So this car will stop on a dime in any situation. I drive these cars on the freeway and with a lot of old cars, like if you're in a Silver Ghost, if you're in a Duesenberg, you know, some of of these giant big cars, okay, you get on the freeway, but you know, you keep like a football field between you and the guy in front of you. And in a Type 35, I mean, you get in the carpool lane, you get on the bumper of the guy in front of you, he taps his brakes, you tap your brakes, everybody's good. It's like <laughs> driving a modern car. That's so exciting. And people say, like, well, what have you done to modify the brakes and modernize the design? Nothing. That's the thing. I mean, in a Type 35 that we build, all of the ingenuity that you experience, that's all at Tori Bugatti. And we're just recreating what he designed. Um, the suspension... You know, in the way the car handles, it's, it's like driving a go-kart. You've got stubby little tight quarter elliptical rear springs riveted to the chassis in the back. And in the front, you've got semi-elliptical springs. You've got coil dampers on all four corners. And Bugatti thought, you know, to make the suspension a little better, let's do something clever with that front axle. So it's a forged front axle, which he insisted be forged hollow to reduce unsuspended weight. So there was a lot of thinking going in and, you know, of course, early 1920s. So this is pre independent suspension days, but kind of sneaking up on the kinds of principles that you would encounter with independent suspension. He was already thinking ahead and saying, I've got to deal with the weight of this axle. So let's reduce it. And by the way, we make all those axles hand forged and hollow, and it's not easy to do. And you know, that's just part of the job. So um, it's a great little design hack in its own right. The, um, the chassis and the weight of the car. One way of reducing weight is to eliminate redundancies in the design. So the crankcase is in two halves so that the lower half acts as a chassis support laterally and it's kind of shoehorned in the chassis. And so when we build an engine, it's counterintuitive to people, but the lower crankcase is machined first. It is installed in the chassis. The gearbox housing is machined and installed in the chassis, and the differential is installed in a chassis. And those three things are, uh, are, you know, they have the ability to be shimmed in terms of their alignment to one another. So those are aligned with a jig, and that's the first thing that happens when one of these chassis is built before any drivetrain stuff is on it. Lower crankcase, gearbox, and diff. They're, and, they're,
1: and they're all structural members.
0: Yes, and there, well, the gearbox housing and the diff are not structural members. It's just the lower crankcase. But those three things get aligned with each other. I see. And then the lower crankcase comes out. Now that goes to the engine shop and an engine's built around it. But because that's a structural member, it needs to be in the chassis and its work needs to be kind of done before it can go and become an engine. I see. Okay. You know, the gearbox in this car, you talk about shifting gearboxes in most old cars and it's a job right? No synchro, it's a, it's a crash box, straight cut gears, whatever, you know, and you're, you're double clutching, you're rev matching, downshifting, you know. You're pausing between gears. Yeah. Right. So here you have a guy who's designing a car because he wants to win the Grand Prix World Championship, which he would win. And so how do you save time in a race? Well, maybe all those seconds of rev matching and double clutching are something that can be done away with. So he designs a gearbox and mind you in this car, the transmission is this big. Okay. It's this little tiny thing and it's got a lay shaft. That's always turning the same speed as the main shaft. So all the gears are always turning the same speed. So on purpose and by design, you do not double clutch. It's a little hair trigger clutch pedal that barely moves and you just snap those gears in and out like you're driving a modern car. Early 1920s. So, this is the kind of stuff that is just unlike anything else in race cars. So, you have a car that'll do 120 miles an hour. It's got a little steering brake on it so you can lock up the rear wheels. So, when all the giant SSKs and Bentleys and all these huge cars, you know, they're going down a straight and they're coming up on a hairpin turn and they're downshifting and they're slowing down and they're braking. Well, here comes the Bugatti hauling ass, barreling past them. They hit the hairpin turn pull up the handbrake, swing the, swing the, the tail around and charge up the hill because steering, braking, shifting on this car was everything. And a lot of other people were thinking about engines. You know, Enzo Ferrari famously said, I build engines and I throw in the car for free. I think he was kind of borrowing that expression from Alfa Romeo. And a lot of manufacturers early in those days had that mentality. If we just build a good engine, the rest doesn't matter. Ettore Bugatti uh, really didn't think that way. He thought the engine is just part of the car, and it's no more important than the rest of the car, and you've got to get it all right. And no one else was really doing that back then. And the other guy we should mention,
1: aside from Ettore, is Jean Bugatti, his son, Mm -hmm. who was really essential to all of this development.
0: Yeah, there was an, a very interesting father-son dynamic, you know, the same with sort of the father-son dynamic in the Ford family. And, um, you had the, the younger guys who were maybe more in touch with the, the current market demands of their day and the dads were very confident and sort of set in their ways and there was that tension and that certainly existed between Ettore and Jean. Jean, I think, got more of his way than what you would see in the Ford family, um, you know, the the Model A equivalent in the Bugatti family was the Type 57. So you had these larger sort of uh, coach-built cars with outside coach work. And, um, you know, the the, the sort of clashes in the family had to do with things like, you know, Tori Bugatti didn't like superchargers. He didn't like independent suspension. He thought, you know, and remember, unlike the Ford family, the Bugatti family were all artists. Right. And, you know, If you read between the lines for a Tori Bugatti, in in my opinion, I kind of have a theory that I don't think that he ever created a distinction between form and function. You know, something that worked well necessarily was also the most beautiful way to do it. And the most beautiful and artistically, you know, well-done way of doing something had to necessarily be also the most mechanically functional way. It's interesting
1: that you mention that, John, because there's kind of an adage in aviation that... If a plane looks good, it probably
0: flies well. Right. Well, so, you know, Ettore didn't like independent front suspension because he thought that that beautifully sculpted front axle was a thing of beauty. He thought that that was really art. He thought it was pretty. And it is, if you look at it. I mean, it's gorgeous. So he, he, he didn't like the idea that, you know, you know on, on paper, theoretically, independent suspension is a better way to go. But how could that be the case? Because it doesn't look as good. So there there were those kinds of tensions. Um, I I think that there are some interesting parallels, you know, with the Ford family. You know, Tori Bugatti and Superchargers and Henry Ford with water pumps. You could argue that Henry Ford was against water pumps because he was just cheap. But at least he said that he didn't like them because he thought, it was unnecessary mechanical interference in something that's just a natural occurrence. Right. Convection current means hot things rise, so water will circulate through the radiator on its own, and if you add a pump, it's sort of um, blasphemy. Tori Bugatti thought the same thing about superchargers, that if the engine is built properly, uh, it will breathe on its own, and sort of artificially respirating it is is sort of blasphemous. So they both had these these kind of tracks that they would get on. But, um, you know, Jean Bugatti, uh, it's, it's a shame that he died as young as he did. And, um, it, 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 you know, it, it's a shame, not only in its own right because he died, but it's a shame because we didn't get to see what could have become of the Bugatti brand because he was doing some amazing stuff. Um, and and he, it,
1: was, he was killed road testing a car, right?
0: Yeah, he was driving a tank. And he he ran into a tree. Tank is this weird little race car, right. and you know which is bizarre and genius in its own right, like way ahead of its time. And there was a Type 57 called Le Gris, which means the gray. It was painted gray, and that was sort of the prototype um, Type 57 Bugatti, and it was sort of like the rolling test bed for all the improvements that they would add. And it was uh, you know kind of the the car that a Tori would drive and that Jean would drive. And so, um, they, they, he crashed and, um, I can't remember if it was a Tory or somebody else, but this type 57, Legree was driven out and, uh, they picked him up and put him in the back seat of it. And, um, and he, di- he died in the car in the back seat, which, you know, there's some symbolism there because this was sort of his, his rolling experiment. Kind of bay you know that and, and this was the car they were using to develop and continue to improve the type fifty seven and he he passed away right right in it and i 've seen the car and it's it 's sort of a macabre thing, but you know there there are blood stains on the back seat that you can still see i mean it 's been untouched since then, mm-hmm. but um, the other kind of uh, uh tragedy with his death obviously is the the strain that it put on uh, Ettore and know, I think Ettore just sort of emotionally ran out of steam at that point. And so you saw with Jean's death, you know, sort of the decline of, of the Bugatti brand. Ettore had other children, but sort of, um, curiously, you know, all by different women. And so, um, Jean was really his, his, you could say his favorite, you know, um, and, um, Anyway, the the, the Bugatti family, are are, it's amazing. And they're amazing people. And, you know, there's still some of them alive today. And their legacy and their accomplishments really were cut short. And it would have been fascinating to see what they would have gone on to do. However, what they did do in that short period of time is something that nobody else has ever matched. I mean, it's incredible. So for us, you know, we're obviously very passionate about this and we, we just like it because we're car guys and we're history guys. So for us, it's really neat to be able to um, do a small part in uh, continuing to, to honor that legacy and uh, allow people to learn about it and be aware of it and sort of give, give credit where credit's due. Yeah, for sure.
1: And the Type 35, of course, is just one car that Persong
0: offers. There's also the Alpha 8C. Sure, so the, um, you know, sort of the Italian counterpart to Torri Bugatti, you might say, was Vittorio Liano, who, uh who designed uh, the, the 8C Monza Grand Prix car, and then the Mille, Mille version of that, and then the 2.9s, and the 308, and P2, P3, Alfetta, all that stuff, and um, he was another genius, um, he, gosh, I mean, he did he, he contributed so much to Alfa Romeo's early success. Um, later, uh, Ferrari later, um, beyond that, I I can't even remember, but I mean, just about every major Italian, uh, car manufacturer had, uh, some, some work done by, by Iano. Um, what he did really, and, and this really did sort of encapsulate that, that Ferrari saying of, um, we sell engines and throw in the car for free. If you look at the early alphas, the engine is just like from another planet, amazing. And the rest of the car, you're like, okay, that works. But the engine, you know, is like, what is this? It's like pulling
1: the back off of a fine watch. The intricacy and everything's done with absolute style, but also... You know, much like Bugatti, as you said, you know the form and function is kind of melded together, mm-hmm. like the cooling fins on the on the manifold of, a, of an Alpha. Right. You know, it's just amazing to me.
0: Yeah, and in in the eight C engine, you know, it's an all aluminum engine. Um, it, it's it's a dry sump engine. They were all twin cams, supercharged, but all aluminum, and uh, same displacement as a Type Thirty Five, but much bigger bore and much less stroke. So, you know, you have a nod there to sort of advancements, technologically speaking, in embracing better engineering. Same displacement, but a lot more horsepower than a Type 35. The other interesting thing also, when you start looking at those Italian cars of the 1930s that would end up dominating over the French cars, is that, you know, geopolitically... Italy and Germany and, you know, probably some other countries, but definitely not France, were getting government subsidies to help them develop their automobiles. And so, the Italian cars became just powerhouses, and German cars became powerhouses. And then you look at little old Bugatti, well, he wasn't getting any money. So, around the time that Jano was really starting to work up some of his early masterpieces, you see Bugatti over in France, you know, trying to come up with his next generation car, and, you know, you wonder what could have been. Again, you know, if there was money there, he didn't really have a lot of money. You had the 35 being adapted into the 51, which was just a twin cam head on a 35, and then you had the 59. The 59 was incredible. I mean, that was just, I mean, it was a glorious car, but, You know, you had, in the meantime, Alfa Romeo that was just going off and and doing incredible things, and Bugatti was just kind of out of steam at that point. So you definitely had that political component in Europe that that had a lot of influence on what was being built.
1: By the way, getting back to the concept of uh, maybe an alternative history where Bugatti survives and thrives into the 50s and 60s, and I touched on this in another episode of the show, but... To think what might have happened where Bugatti was challenging Ferrari through the 50s mm. and 60s, what an incredible rivalry that could have been. Right. And, I, you know, the Schlumpf brothers collected so many Bugattis in the 40s and 50s and, and just hid them away. And if they had taken those financial resources and tried to reinvigorate the company, yeah, who knows what could have happened?
0: Right, because by the, the 40s, 50s, um you don't really see French cars in their prime anymore. They're they're on the decline, and you see other cars that are really in their prime. And so I think if there was the the financial component, then yes, by all means, my gosh, what what Jean Bugatti could have done, what. I mean, French engineering is, is fabulous. I mean, when you go back to the Edwardian cars, you see what was being done in France, and it's remarkable. So if you take that ingenuity and you match it with the financial resources and wherewithal to actually get things done, um, and, and you would make sort of a, a, a French-Italian uh, kind of uh, thing, you know, in terms of, you know, what could have gone up against, maybe instead of Ford Ferrari, it would have been Bugatti Ferrari. Right. And that, that could have been really cool. Very cool.
1: Well, John, there are probably few places in the world where you could accomplish what you're doing, Um, and the history of Argentina is fascinating, those old world skills that never really perished
0: there. Yeah. I I would love to hear more about that. Argentina is an incredible place. I lived there for um, about 15 years full time, and um, I, I still love it, and of course I go there all the time. but. You know, you look at a, a country in South America, very far away from Europe and, and the rest of the world geographically, and uh, originally a colony of Spain, and then it gets its independence, and then a lot of Italians go there, and then World War One, World War Two, you start to see a lot of immigrant waves from Europe. And Argentina, in particular, saw a lot of immigrants who were of um, the, the the upper classes in Europe, who were going there and um there was sort of this prevailing mentality that a lot of people in europe felt that europe would never recover from the war and that it was just over it was done and they felt that they needed to relocate their lifestyles entirely to sort of this new europe in south america so you know argentina and well buenos aires in particular would become known as the paris of the south and for good reason because you had entire palaces in some cases being disassembled and shipped down to Argentina and rebuilt. Um you had all of the sort of uh the, the lifestyle trappings of the upper classes in Europe being sent down there. Polo, you know, Argentina is to this day famous for polo and that's because that became something that all these these people who moved there wanted to take with them. Um, you know, winemaking, you know, Argentina is, is in, in in the top Uh, winemaking countries in the world, again, because of that European heritage. And um, another very significant thing was motorsport. There were a number of original Bugattis, Alfa Romeos, Mercedes, Maseratis, that all made their way to Argentina with their, you know, European immigrant owners at the time. And motorsport in Argentina was very formidable with vintage races all over the country. And of course, famous, Race car drivers uh, who are a little more contemporary, like Fangio, are are world famous. So rather than our company being one which is sort of just uh, hijacking this cultural thing from another country, um, actually Bugattis have been part of Argentine culture uh, since they were new and uh, very much at home there. So, in fact, the city where our factory is located is called Paraná in the uh, province of Entre Rios. And I have old black and white pictures on my wall right here of early Grand Prix racing on the streets in Paraná with, with early Bugattis and Alfa Romeos there. So, culturally, there's, there's this just huge legacy. They, they can't be uh, overstated. Um, this idea of the Paris of the South, you know, you had, you had this lifestyle in its entirety that was transplanted. And so it went from being just a colony of people from Spain to to, to a very diverse society of Europeans, of, uh, of you know, some very interesting people and a lot of very sophisticated people with means and with good taste and so forth. So you had a lot of uh, Italians, a lot of French, British, Germans, and they brought together sort of their respective cultural trappings into what became... Argentina and this this just, you know, unrivaled place to live at the time. Now, at the same time, they're very far away from Europe. So, let's say you have a Type 35 Bugatti in the 1920s or the 1930s or the 1940s, whenever, and something breaks. Well, how long does it take the ship from France to arrive to bring the part? It's not going to happen. You know, you're, you're very separated from the rest of the world. This is pre-DHL. <laughs> so necessity as they say is the mother of invention so people became very resourceful i think in the same way that you you know you sort of hear of bush mechanics in australia because you're just far away from everything else so you have to be resourceful you have to figure out how to make things work and that resourcefulness is something that's now also very embedded in argentine culture so they have the the sort of cultural uh, inclinations and, and sophistications towards this stuff. But now they're also very good at being self-reliant. And that's something that they're good at to this day. So it's a, it's a perfect storm that comes all together in terms of why Persang is a company that uh, has done so well in Argentina for all of those reasons.
1: And also why those skills were
0: never lost. The things that, that have become
1: obsolete in other parts of the West
0: never really went away. Exactly. You know, in the United States and in Europe, um, there are these these things that I kind of chuckle at. But, you know, you, you talk about car restoration and you hear about the lost arts. Of car restoration, like using an English wheel and panel beating and all this stuff, and people make such a big deal out of it and you know if you need any work done, it takes forever, and it's really expensive and you've got a guy who's like a a kind of debutante and he takes himself really seriously and it's like you know I'm an artiste, and you know watch me work my wonders i've I've revived a lost art. Hmm. And it's like you go to Argentina and they just, they, you know, it's like, this isn't a lost art. This is something that never went away and they just get stuff done. <laughs> right, right. Pouring Babbitt bearings, no problem. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I, th- I think that, you know, with all of the uh, advancements in, in sort of North America and Europe, um, it's maybe allowed us to get a little too comfortable. And now we're very easily scared away and intimidated by tasks, which, you know, for our workforce uh, in Argentina you know, they they don't even blink at or think twice about.
1: Yeah, and uh, there was no mystique developed like there has been here.
0: That's right. Yeah. That's
1: right. Um, And and you said it's a workforce of about 100? Yes. Yeah. So what's the, how long does it take from uh, the time an order is placed on, say, a Type 35 until the car is rolling out? How long does that take?
0: Well, um, if you measure that, while also taking into account sort of the fact that there's always a back order, you know, it's usually about a year, but we are turning out about one car a month um, at the current rate we're going at. that's based on having a lot of guys working five days a week doing things like the castings and the machine work. So it's not that it takes a month to build the car. It's, you know, more like six months of all of the preparations being done of uh, foundry work and machine work and assembly and so forth. But it all comes together and sort of undergoes final assembly in in that last month.
1: And am I right in thinking that there is a a degree of series production happening? Um, In other words, it's not like you're uh, casting one
0: engine block at a time. Well, the, um, the way that we build things is actually... To many people's surprise um, not much different than what they did back in the day and we have not really modernized that um, when we build an aluminum wheel on a grand prix uh, type 35 for example uh, th- that happens one at a time and wow. it'll be an entire week of making that mold and you know it's like putting together a puzzle to make that sand mold and then on the friday of that week the metal is poured and then the mold is broken apart and you see if the casting turned out well or not. And if it does, it goes to the machine shop. And if it doesn't, it gets thrown back in and melted again. Wow. But those are one at a time. And uh, in the course of a week, two or three or maybe four molds might be made for, for wheels like that. But I mean, it's for every piece, it's a ton of work from start to finish. For cylinder blocks, it's the same thing get done one at a time. Each sandbox has to be made one at a time. And all of the time goes into preparing the molds for the pour. The pour takes a matter of minutes, but getting all of that set up and using the patterns to press the sand and then hardening it and then putting all that together. um, I, I, I always love going into the foundry and watching those guys work because it's just this very tedious sort of endless job of building all these little puzzles and they know that, you know, they're going to get their metal poured in them and then smashed. Right, right. John, there are some concessions
1: to modern life, right? For example, like metallurgy has changed. So I imagine some of your uh, some of your raw materials are much improved from the original. Mm-hmm. Uh, your your methods really haven't changed, and it results in a really authentic product. But then there's a couple little conveniences, or at least
0: concessions to the modern day, right, that are built into the cars? Um, Yes, but actually not very many. Um, There are a lot of uh, aluminum pieces in our cars, and when it comes to aluminum castings, aluminum has come a long way in the last century. Right. Um, Aluminum, going back to the first days of alloy wheels, if you look in old photos you can see stacks of alloy wheels in the pits during Bugatti races, and presumably they were changing out wheels as frequently as tires because of the metal fatigue. Uh, Today, like when we pour aluminum, they used aluminum, we use aluminum. Same material, however, the alloy, totally different. We're using 6061 T6, which is induction hardened before it's machined. And it's something that's bulletproof, which everyone is is more than thrilled to have, uh, especially when you're talking about the wheels that are under you. Yeah, absolutely,
1: yeah. And now, now, what about? Uh, isn't there? Aren't there a couple of of different things about the electrical system that uh, are just more a little bit more convenient than than the original cars?
0: Well, in the Grand Prix French cars, we do the electrical system is the same. The only difference on the Grand Prix. Cars specifically like the Type 37, 35s, 51s, is that originally from the factory it was a total loss electrical system. So you were meant to use the bat the, the battery for starting. Um, a lot of people think they did not have electric starters. They did have electric starters new, and so we haven't departed from that. But it was a total loss system. So once you depleted what was in the battery, um, you had to charge it or put in a new battery. Uh, we have followed suit with what a lot of original Bugattis were already doing before we started building our cars. And that is adding an alternator, which is hidden under the seat and it runs off of the drive shaft so that you can't see it. And, you know, that's just a very small nod to convenience, but things like that, that we do, um, were, were implemented on these cars before we started doing them. They were implemented by, the Bugatti, larger Bugatti community and things like that. Um, With the Grand Prix cars, I think one of the biggest uh, adaptations or improvements that you can spec out on a car has to do with the engine, specifically um, the bottom end, because the Type 35Bs had roller-bearing cranks. Uh, Other Type 35s did have plane-bearing cranks. The Type 35As had plane-bearing cranks originally. So what we do is we offer an option where the Type 35B can be ordered with a plane bearing crank, which is something that reduces long-term maintenance because roller bearing cranks have to be taken out of the engine and disassembled and, uh, and rebuilt sort of on a regular basis. So uh, by, by putting a plane bearing crank in it, you've got a car that is, is not going to have to undergo those maintenance cycles. Right. And then the cylinders are sleeved with steel or Nicosil or what do you use? Well, in a Type 35, in all the Grand Prix cars, they have cast iron cylinder oh, blocks. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, I thought that was also aluminum, but... No, the blocks are cast iron. Okay. And interesting about the blocks is that the head is uh, integral to the block. It's not removable because they didn't want to deal with, uh, back in the day, A Ettore didn't want to deal with uh, head gasket problems. Mm. So you do not have a removable head which makes machining uh valve seats kind of fun and all that <laughs> stuff but it is something that's that's pretty stalwart and and reliable yeah very cool
1: now i'm curious about the breakdown of how many customers order say a
0: type 35 versus an alpha yeah the the um the type 35 bar none is our as our our best seller um and for good reason you know it's it's a lot of fun uh it's a lot of car for the money, and I'd say that it's it's ninety percent of what we do and it's it's by far the most popular offering we have super cool now we're both heading to Monterey Car week
1: in a little bit pretty exciting, and you're going to have a big display this year right
0: yes yeah, so we've uh we've actually displayed at retro auto every year since uh that event began, and we will uh, we will be there this year we're going to have a, a display space that looks just sort of like this uh, this room right here. And we're going to have a couple of great cars. And if any of you all watching are going to be at Retro Auto, it's in the Concord Village area adjacent to the Gooding Auction Tent. And you will definitely see us if you come by. So please stop by and say hello if that's the case. Fantastic. Now, uh, how long are the test drives? <laughs> you know, there was, I think, one or two years. I tried doing a ride-and-drive kind of thing up yeah. there, and I had my display inside the big retro auto tent and i had a car that was sort of at the back of it next to an opening and i would like roll the car out and i would roll it kind of down the parking lot a little ways before i would start it because i wasn't really supposed to do that and i take people for a drive and that is just not the week to be driving a grand prix car around uh that area right. uh, in, in Pebble Beach you know so we have uh, yeah that, that was a lesson learned and, and we're now just doing uh, static displays I remember I gave a guy a, a test drive one year and it was in the evening and it was still light outside but we actually made it and we kind of did this loop and um, I was just hauling ass and there was no traffic and I was really happy about that and I wanted this guy to experience the car and really show off what it could do And so I just, I drove this thing like you're supposed to drive them and came into a stop sign and this like Karen kind of woman pulled up next to me and was just screaming like, how dare you drive like that around here? And it's like, okay, (laughs) like, you know, I, everybody else is like, you know, they want to like give you a high five and stuff, but you know, you get some of these people and it's like, did you know about Pebble Beach when you moved into the area? You know, this happens every year, right?
1: Yeah, well, she was probably just on her last nerve of the
0: day, and you you just happened to get both barrels. Right, exactly. It's like, you know, she didn't get the memo that the locals who aren't in a car should probably take off that week. Right, right. right. (laughs) Um,
1: Or at least get on your bicycle or something, right? Not not have to worry about traffic. Because it is crazy every year, you know. Uh, The whole peninsula is just... But that's, what's fun is if you're going to get stuck in traffic, at least you're stuck with a bunch of vintage cars, right? Right. And supercars and the latest and greatest. So, you know, there's always something to look at. I
0: I always get a kick out of it. You know, driving around, you know, let's say you're in LA and you you go into a market and you find a car in a parking lot, you know, let's say it's an old Rolls Royce or something or, you know, whatever, classic car.
1: Jaguar, whatever. Yeah.
0: yeah, You see see an E-Type or whatever. I'm going to walk over to that thing. I'm going to thoroughly examine it. I'm yep. going to look it over. I might stand around for a few minutes in hopes that the owner comes out so I can talk to him. And, you know, it's an event. If you see a car, you go up to Monterey car week and like in the parking lot of the McDonald's, you know, they're going to be a Hispano Suizas. You're going to go over to like the local motel and they're going to be Duesenberg's and they're going to be Bugatti's and stuff. You're going to see guys driving around gullwings wings to get from here to there. And, by like day three of car week, you don't even notice anymore. You know, there could be, there could be, you know, a, a, a GTO Ferrari that maybe goes by and, you know, out of the corner of your eye, oh yeah, GTO. Yeah. But I mean, it's You're like a
1: hundred percent right, dude. And, uh, it's, it's like this total saturation and it happens to me every year, whether it's at the Amelia or in Monterey or w- what have you, uh, just, What, a couple months ago, uh, you know, I was at a show down here in Orange County and there were six or seven 300 SLs and you just get so spoiled. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But we have to always remember how lucky we are because there are vast, vast tracts of land where there are no classic cars
0: to be seen. That's right.
1: All over the country. And people are like, you know, they see a 69 Charger and they get excited.
0: Most of the country, in my experience doing tours and, and doing long haul road trips and stuff, most of the country does not have a, a car culture that's very deep, or at least they don't have the the, uh, the real blessing of being able to see these things on a regular basis. I mean, I've, I've been driving around, you know, like Model A Fords before, and you go through some towns in Texas where people think you're a celebrity, and it's like, you know, driving around any place in Southern California, nobody cares about a Model A. They're used to seeing gull wings and E-types and all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah, for sure.
1: Well, and that reminds me, I wanted to ask you, you drove your Model A Woody all the way from California to Florida for Amelia Island this year. Tell, tell me about that trip.
0: Yeah, you know, it, it kind of came about because at the time, for whatever reason, I, I didn't feel like dealing with major airlines. I hadn't been on a flight for a couple years because of COVID stuff, and it, it kind of felt good. And, um, and I thought, well, you know, I can drive that. And um, I always had a feeling in my Model A that it was kind of like an indestructible car. Mm -hmm. and I have a lot of Model Ts and when I got my Model A it was like the sort of messianic fulfillment of the Model T legacy you know (laughs) like all the things a Model T doesn't have that you try to modify into a Model T the Model A is just born with and I still like Model Ts a lot better but the Model A always gave me this impression that it was just this indestructible car that you could do anything with. So I thought, yeah, what the hell? You know, we're going to drive that thing to Florida and go to Amelia. And uh, yeah, and we did. Um, it's a 31? Uh, 29. 29, okay. Yeah. It's a four-cylinder, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, highway gears and... It's got a Mitchell overdrive in it. Okay. It um, doesn't have anything that's uncharacteristic for things you could have done to it at the time. Sure. It's, it's got a high-compression head on it. It's got a Scheibler carburetor, and it's got a Mitchell overdrive. Everything else is stock. And, uh, so I was on highway 10. I did 10 all across and, uh, it was a great trip. We had no issues. Um, except for once we got in Florida, um, five miles out from Amelia Island, having conquered the entire country, uh, some old lady pulled out right in front of me and we kind of had a a brief skirmish and we kind of brushed up against each other. And I was five miles out and I didn't even stop. It was totally her fault. And she thought that, you know, we'd be pulling over and exchanging information. And I was like, I could care less. I'm not stopping. I'm going (sighs) to keep going. I'm going to make it there to the Ritz Carlton. And it you know we so took, did you get a little rash on the fender? Or yeah, there was a little rash. We fixed it when we got back. Yeah, yeah. but wow. other than that, it was a very uneventful trip.
1: Now, did you have to panic break to, or did you just swerve? I threaded the
0: needle. I went between yeah. oh, her and man. another car, and it kind of worked out okay. But got to help you if you're driving an old car in Florida. You know, I mean, you got old blind people everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Five miles out, <laughs> man. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's the luck. And that wasn't my first cross-country trip, by the way. In 2016, I drove one of our Persang Type 35s across the country. Um, and we did the great race with Jesse Combs, who was the Grand Marshal, between California and Illinois. And then that event ended in Illinois, and we continued on to New York and New England mm-hmm. and did the full cross-country thing. And that was a great trip. The gas stops must have been kind of interesting. Uh, a lot of questions, for sure. Yeah. Um, I learned a lot about the fuel economy of these cars. You know, they're loud, and so you think they must be gas guzzlers, but we were getting about, uh, you know, between 15 and 18 miles a gallon on the highway. Wow. What kind of uh, revs are you turning at freeway speed? You know, you're going more than fast enough to be in the far left lane at 4,000 revs. Okay. Um, I was doing anywhere between, I don't know, I'd say probably 80, 85 the whole way, maybe more. But, you know, the car is happy doing... it's in
1: its sweet spot right
0: yeah i I, i've driven that much faster before we did a photo shoot outside of dubai a few years ago and um there were it was supercars and the bugatti and they wanted to get the magic hour and so the sun's going down and by the time we load it up it's dark we're an hour and a half out from dubai and like I can't remember who I was. I was following Matt Farah and Chris Harris was following me and they were each in some kind of supercar. And all I know when I'm driving this thing, I'm thinking to myself, I don't know where the hell I'm going. I have no idea where we are. I'm in the middle of nowhere and I'll be damned if I'm going to get lost out here. And so. And everything looks the same. Everything looks the same. And we're on this highway and there are these uh, big, you know, galvanized steel lampposts that go up really high and there's like a speed camera on each one of them. So we're in this this entourage of cars, and you know if you see the flash, it means that the speed camera got you because you're going too fast, and so you know we're going down this road, hauling ass, and it's like flash, 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 <laughs> flash, 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 and they kept going faster and faster because I think they were trying to see like when I was going to fall off, you know like how right. how how could i how far could I hang on into this and I never let go, and we came into the city. And um, there was, you know, they, they have these these really big swooping kind of turnoffs, and everything has this fine dust sand on it. And I'm following Farah. I think I was following Farah, and I got the Type 35 into like a four wheel drift, doing um, must have been 80 miles an hour. And uh, anyway, we got back to the house, and all these guys came running up to me, and I couldn't hear anything because, you know. When we were on the road, I think I was doing well over 100 miles an hour. I couldn't see gauges. I couldn't see anything. My face was, like, flapping. And we had to have been doing 100, 110 for, like, over an hour and a half straight. So we get in, and I'm deaf. I mean, I can't hear anything. Yeah. And all these guys are running up and, like, happy because the the, the Type 35 made it. And they, they weren't sure if, like, it could go that fast. And it was the sort of endurance thing that, that kind of happened by accident. But You got to taste, like little tiny bit of what
1: it's like to be at Le Mans.
0: Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I mean, it's going across the country. All that to say was a breeze compared to that. Yeah. Um, you know, what I wanted to ask John is, um,
1: uh, are a lot of your customers, are they owners of the original cars as well? And they, but of course they can't drive them because they're so valuable.
0: Um, you know, more often than you would think. Yes. Um, I have had original type 35s that get sent to me for mechanical work and servicing and that kind of thing and then the owners very quickly realize it will be cheaper if they just buy a brand new Persang clone of their car. Yeah. And they take the original one and they leave it all original just how it is and that gets parked in a special place. And then they go out and they drive the new one with sort of guilt free driving. Besides what you're building right now, is there anything else in the works? Well, something that um, was was actually just sort of announced not too long ago was uh, our newest car, which is the c six ml car and um, that 's right, I did see that yeah that that was all jorge 's doing you know he 's really sort of the creative mind behind things, and i didn 't totally buy into that in the back of my mind as that was being developed. I thought, who is going to care about this thing? And I mean, I care about it. I think it's cool, but I mean, it's one of these sort of things that for a lot of people is is something obscure that you haven't heard of. Well, let me tell you, that car, the first one got done and it was uh, shown at Retromobile this year in Paris and it created a total sensation. And it revealed that there, I mean, even in the United States, there is a huge following of ML car and there are all these sort of closet Amilcar nerds who just came out of the woodwork. And so all that to say, again, it, it, it speaks to the point that when you're passion driven and you just kind of follow your instinct, as Persang has always done, um, good things happen.
1: Yeah. What's the thumbnail sketch of carb? Because I, I'll confess, I know almost nothing about them.
0: It's French, of course. Yeah. It's like a little voiturette. I mean, you're looking in front of you, there's a Type 35 here, and the ammo car makes the Type 35 look like a giant. Right. Um, It's an inline six supercharged engine. It's very small displacement, it's like a liter and a half, I think, and um, it's very light. It's very light, and it's very fast. I mean this is a car that could compete in Grand Prix racing against, you know, the likes of a of a Grand Prix Bugatti.
1: Yeah, really neat. Um and whatever became of car anyway. Is that just one of the
0: casualties of the depression? I don't know if it was the depression that took it out or uh World War II, but one but between those two, yeah, it um it's long gone. Yeah,
1: really distinctive looking. Um they have a lovely even just looking at them, they
0: have a a, per, a lightness that you can perceive. Right. I really like that about them. With a huge supercharger. I mean, the, su- yeah. the supercharger has the appearance of having more displacement than the engine. <laughs> wow. Amazing. It's a like a Roots type? Yes. Twin yes. screw? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Twin screw, just like a Type 35.
1: Okay. Really cool.
0: Well, I'm going to have to... Uh, is that on your website right now? Uh, no, it's well, not, but okay. I can send you some pictures of yeah, it.
1: Yeah, send me some pictures all included in the episode.
0: It's in our Instagram page, awesome. too. Awesome. Very good. You know,
1: earlier when you were talking about how you had that customer who had Lamborghinis and he had this epiphany with the Type 35, that made me think of something else, which is that almost by definition, the driver is the least important part of the car these days. And the manufacturers that were really focused on building a driver's car, they've kind of lost
0: the script as well. Mm. Isn't that really like, that? that's kind of what drives you, right? I mean... Well, absolutely, because with these old cars, the driver is part of the machine. When when you are driving a Type 35 or a Monza or any of these old cars and you're driving it well, you really sync up with the machine. And you get to the point where you stop looking at the tack because your body has memorized the sort of uh, pitch frequency of the gear wine and you just know that's when you put it in. So, I mean, you, you really merge with the machine and it's this biomechanical thing that gives you an experience that a car today won't give you. I mean, there's some cars today that you, you, you can't even open the hood on them, right? And so you've got the simplicity on one hand of these, of these antiquated things that were designed 100 years ago, but you've got the ability as the user to really have this hands on analog experience that, that satisfies on a level that the newer cars just don't. But because that's also something that often is prevented by the scarcity and the value and the age of the original cars, you know, I really, I'll come back again to the idea of Persang being a car for people that want to experience them and want to drive them. I mean, we are there for people who want to drive. We we are a brand that caters to drivers. And Aren't you doing a tour coming up? Yeah, we have a tour coming up in Napa Valley, and it's uh, something I'm doing with Wayne Carini, who's one of our customers. He has a, a Twin Cam Type 51, and we've got, um, you know, I've invited several people, and we'll see kind of what the group looks like, but we're going to... Um, we're going to repeat a tour route that I just did, uh, with some horses carriage club friends. And we're going to do Napa Sonoma kind of highway one north of San Francisco and all that stuff, but in the persang cars. And I love touring and I'm always touring my own cars and I'm always happy to organize tours for our persang cars. We let the, the events themselves kind of roll out organically, you know, as, as i 'm talking with different customers in different places, different little groups and and we say, "Hey, we should do this, but you know the point is is that it's all about driving these cars, and I want to uh, facilitate that as much as possible and that's definitely a huge part of the ownership experience of these cars is doing this kind of stuff together, getting out, and stretching their legs um, it's my favorite thing to do regardless. Yeah, and know. it's it's about bonding with the machine, right? Like Absolutely.
1: You you can get in and you can take a weekend drive on your own or you can be with a group and start to compare notes and really just sort
0: of make it part of your muscle memory, dial it in. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it doesn't matter how much I think that my own cars are sort of ready and sorted out. It's always in the context of a tour that they get taken to the next level. And, you know, we, you know, our, our mutual friend, Alan Clendenin, with the Rolls-Royce tour, the Silver Ghost stuff, I mean, we took our Silver Ghost and our then nine-month-old boy and did that entire tour and learned a ton about the car, comparing notes with the other guys in the parking lots at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you, you can you, you cannot absorb that much information if all you do is read old books about these cars. right similarly like you know with the horses carriage club guys we just did this thing and it was i had my locomobile there we had um three pairs arrows a rambler two pope hartford's and um it was just incredible i mean century plus old brass cars tackling you know some pretty some pretty gnarly roads grades turns all that kind of stuff and uh, by the way, this was up in Sonoma and Napa. Yeah, okay. that was that was just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, and um, you know, so that I I love to drive these things, and you understand them, and you learn about them, and you appreciate their original design as you put them to those sort of tests. Did you guys drive that highway
1: between Santa Rosa and Calistoga? Uh, it's really windy, and it's got quite a quite a few grades on it. It's pretty challenging for
0: even for a a new car you know i'm sure we probably did because the guy who arranged this tour made sure that we didn't miss any hard to drive on road believe me (laughs) yeah yeah
1: (laughs) Uh, yeah just being and the other thing too is being in the mix of cars of that
0: age you get that sense of time travel that i love you know yeah well and, and about the tours that i do with my own cars it's all about just that time travel when we build cars new at Persang for our customers I, I tell every single one of our customers that this is a time travel experience and that's that 's totally what it 's all about and um, you know you you experience that as you enjoy the cars you experience that as you as you work and on a lot of old car tours, there is a lot of work it 's just not a vacation i mean I, I, I tend to come home exhausted from these things, but it th- that in its own right that experience takes you back in time. Um, you know, case in point, when we were up in Napa a couple of weeks ago, I had one of my locomobiles, which when it was sold was the most expensive car in the United States. And it was billed as the best built car in America. Well, on day two, I was dealing with electrical shorts and other things. And, um, it's got such a complex electrical system that I just decided to leave it alone. And, you know, there's, we, we could do a two hour episode just on what I dealt with for the first two days of troubleshooting that car. But, uh, the funny thing is, is that I had one of my model T's sent up to use to finish the tour. So in the same tour here, we had the most expensive car built as the belt, best built car in the world, uh, or at least the best built car in America. And then the, $300 Model T that they made $15 million of right on its heels, finishing what it started. Yeah. That's and <laughs> some definite contrasts there. Yeah. Old Henry comes to the rescue once again. I was, it's funny, I, the Model T came up and the night before I drove it for the first time. I was thinking to myself, you know, lying awake at night, as you do before you drive the next day. You know, this is, this is, you know, not what normal people do, but a guy like me, I'll lay up Sit, sit up at night, awake, wondering how my car is going to run the next day and what kind of problems I might face. And I was thinking, gee, you know, we got, uh, we got a 50-horse Pope Hartford on this thing. We've got a 40-horse Pope Hartford and a 66 Pierce Arrow and, a, and, you know, all these other cars. And I'm thinking, boy, my, my little Model T, I, I better leave last in the morning because I don't want to hold these guys up. <laughs> and so I did. And uh, I very quickly was behind the the last car in the pack and kind of hung out there for a minute and got a little, got a little impatient. So I passed him and, you know, by lunchtime I was right behind the number one guy in front of everybody else. And that model T had no problem keeping up with that pack of all the expensive luxury brass cars from its day. That's awesome. By the way, was that model T in the family earlier in, in its life? No, no, this, this particular car, um, I have a, a really peculiar thing about the, the Bothwell cars. I like to kind of leave them all sure. just as they were. And um, so I wanted a touring car that I could really kind of hot rod in a in a brass era, pre-1920s fashion with those teens era accessories. And so I did that with this car, and it's got a high compression head, and it's got a custom grind on the cam, and it's got a... Uh, a 1913, I think, intake manifold that's higher volume, and it's got a Stromberg OF carburetor and three-to-one gears and the ruck's rear end, so all stuff that a guy in 1915 could have put on this car, and with that stuff, which doesn't constitute really a whole lot when you think about it, I mean, that car has no problem to do 50 miles an hour all day long, and past people going up hills and all kinds of stuff so that's fantastic <laughs> awesome all right john uh
1: what are your coordinates
0: if people want to get in touch and get in line for a per song sure uh well the the website is sort of intentionally understated but the address is persang dot um p-u-r-s-a-n-g argentina.com okay P- great p-u-r-s-a-n-g on Instagram, that's probably the way to follow us for, for the most sort of regular updates. And that's, the handle is Persang Argentina, P-U-R-S-A-N-G Argentina, all one. And then, uh, for me personally, I'm here in Costa Mesa and, uh, I'm, I'm on Instagram at Vitez Collection, V-I-T-E-S-S-E. And if, uh, if anybody's ever in town and want to come by, uh, drop me a line and, uh, and, and you can come find me. I
1: love following your adventures on your Instagram account. You're always posting crazy drives in old cars. It's a lot of fun. Um, I'll put links in the show notes for all this stuff, John.
0: Hey, thanks a lot for having us in. I appreciate it. And I'll
1: see you in Monterey.
0: I look forward to seeing you in Monterey. And we're going to see some fabulous stuff. Uh, Unprecedented year of uh, cars showing up at auctions. It's going to be very interesting. Oh, absolutely. we'll, we'll, We'll continue the conversation then. All right, my friend. Thank you. Good to see you, Maurice. Thanks,
1: man. Appreciate it. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash HP Heritage, support the show, tell your friends, write a review. All of those things help me reach more gearheads like you. I'll see you back here on Wednesday, August 24th, when we'll be talking about everything from vintage Ferraris and Hot Rods to Le Mans and even the king of cool, Steve McQueen. My guest is the incomparable Bruce Meyer. So until then, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.